Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, what is cracking, my friends? It is so great to have you back here with me for yet another episode of Felony Friday right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. As our returning listeners know by now, this is a weekly podcast that's published every single Friday that exposes injustice in the broken criminal justice system. Now, on the Lions of Liberty podcast, we also have podcasts on Monday and Wednesday, so be sure to subscribe to the Lions of Liberty podcast on iTunes so you get all of our great content, three podcasts per week, including this show, Felony Friday. Now, before I get to introducing my guest, I do want to let everyone know of a way that you can help out the Lions of Liberty, a way you can support the show. You can do this by doing your shopping that you do through Amazon, doing it through our affiliate link. Now, you can find our affiliate Amazon link at lionsofliberty.com slash Amazon. All you have to do is click through that link, buy what you would normally buy, and we get a small little kickback. There is absolutely no charge to you, no disruption. It just helps us out a tiny little bit. So please think about doing it. Also, I want you guys to really, for this episode especially, you really should check out the show notes page. This is episode number 31. The show notes will be at lionsofliberty.com slash FF31. Now, my guest today, I've had on two times previously. This is his third time on. It's Mr. John Ziegler. And he has been the uh, the expert on the Penn State Sandusky scandal. And he is going to be releasing some documents that have not been released, have not been published anywhere else. And the only place you'll be able to find them, to start with at least, is on the show notes page for this show. So please check that out. On show, we welcome back John Ziegler for a third appearance on Felony Friday. Some Just some quick background on John. This is his third time on the show, so I'm not going to do the full spiel. John is a nationally syndicated radio host. He's a documentary filmmaker, director, and author. He is the co-host of the John and Leah Show, which airs Sunday evenings. He runs the website FramingPaterno.com, and he is recently columnist at Mediate. Now, during both of John's prior appearances, uh, we talked for about an hour on each one, I think. We, we talked all about the Jerry Sandusky scandal, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about, uh, the, you know, obviously, the Joe Paterno headlines and the Jerry Sandusky scandal news that has been in the news, putting Penn State in a very bad light again. So without further ado, John, welcome back to Felony Friday. John, always good to talk to you. Well, it's great to have you back here, John. And, you know, I, I thought after we had you on two times and I, I thought we got through everything in the scandal almost. You know, there's always more to talk about. And, and sure enough, just a couple of weeks later, stuff went crazy, absolutely crazy. And um, I know it went crazy for you personally. And I kind of want to off with that, if that's OK with you. Um, I know that you were up. There was a, a Matt Sandusky event up in Lewisburg that you went to. A uh, speaking engagement, Matt Sandusky, of course, for those that haven't listened to uh, the John Ziegler's first two appearances on the show, I will put those in the show notes, and I encourage you to check them out. But some quick background on Matt, adopted son of Jerry and Dottie. Uh, he flipped during the trial to Hibbertine, Jerry, to testifying against him. And we talked a lot about Matt in episode 14, so I really encourage you to go check that out to hear more about Matt's story. But, John, I just wanted to find out, first of all, to start with, what motivated you to fly to Pennsylvania, get on a plane, and attend this Matt Sandusky event? 
Well, my wife is still trying to figure out the answer to that question. And I would like an answer myself because it was, a, in retrospect, a very stupid thing. Uh, it was well-intentioned. And um, like so much in this case, uh, the good guys turned into the bad guys and the bad guys turned into the good guys. Uh, the long story short of this is the reason why I went is it was the first time that Matt Sandusky had done a public speaking event in Pennsylvania and anywhere near State College. And Dottie Sandusky, his adopted mother, and Jeff Sandusky, his adopted brother, were going to attend. And I wanted to make sure that there was somebody there who might, if the opportunity arose, be able to confront him who knew the actual truth that he is a lying SOB who clearly and obviously, to anyone who looks at the evidence objectively, decided uh, in the middle of the trial that Jerry was going down, that this was the Salem witch trial, and that his meal ticket was going away, and that he had to make a very quick decision uh, to jump on the Penn State gravy train, which he did uh, without any real vetting, no scrutiny. Uh, I could We could talk for hours, and we already have talked for quite a bit about why it's obvious that he's lying. His meltdown in an interview with Oprah Winfrey when she asked him the question, how do we know you're telling the truth? Ought to really do it for anybody. You can check that out on YouTube. But when I went, I never anticipated that things would go the way that they did. My intention was, if he was uh, there for a question and answer period, to ask him a question or maybe afterwards try to get him to interview, uh, be interviewed by me. I've offered him $10,000, by the way, to his charity for an hour-long video interview, which he's never responded to. And that's a sincere and real offer, by the way. Uh, it's still open today, although I'm not holding my breath. I didn't know if he was going to sign copies of his bogus book that he's put out. But if there was going to be an opportunity to ask him a legitimate question, I wanted to be there. Uh, but mostly I just wanted him to know that I was there. And so long story short, I show up with a ticket in my name. And I am immediately accosted at the entryway. My name has been clearly highlighted by both the police and the organizers. Matt Sandusky has alerted them, gee, I wonder why, uh, that he does not want me there, which is incredibly odd. Uh, they decided to let me in anyway because, after all, I had a ticket in my name. I guess this is still temporarily the United States of America, and it's a public event on a public high school campus. And long story short, I uh, sat down in what I thought was open seating, in the front row, uh, I got told by the organizer it was okay for me to sit there, even though, uh, unbeknownst to me, that area was supposedly uh, reserved seating. Then, uh, without anyone telling me, the police decided that they needed to move me. Uh, I immediately stood up, indicating that I was going to move, uh, but I wanted to make sure I understood what the rules were and whether or not they were telling me as a suggestion or whether they were telling me under force of law. They never answered that question, which turned out to be critical. I ended up getting pushed. This is all on video. You can see it at framingpaterno.com. Uh, I got pushed pretty hard several times by one police officer to move seats, which I did. And then I just sat in my, my new seat doing nothing but tweeting that I was suspecting that I was going to be arrested soon uh, because it was obvious that I was being targeted. The event did not start on time. So about 15, 20 minutes after the event was supposed to start, all of a sudden the police came back and ordered me to leave the building. And I objected to that saying, "I why? I hadn't done anything. I did exactly what they told me to do. I had a ticket in my name to be there. Within 10 seconds, they picked me up, 
out of my seat, dragged me out, uh, dragged me across the floor, got me out of the podium, uh, out, out of the auditorium, slammed me to the ground, handcuffed me hard. Uh, I spent the next, uh, I ended up running into Matt Sandusky as they tried to escort me out the back way. I, I screamed at him that he was a coward. Uh, he did not respond. I spent the next uh, three or four hours in custody, uh, under arrest, charged with multiple bogus crimes, um, which I would have theoretically faced nine years in prison for if ever convicted. I had to come back uh, to Pennsylvania about a month or so later uh, to face a preliminary hearing. And I was essentially offered a deal for all of the charges to be dropped, uh, but I had to pay a $100 fine and effectively admit to a traffic ticket that I was not guilty on. I did not want to do that, but my lawyer was terrible. Uh, Obviously, politically, I had zero leverage because I'm seen as the bad guy and Matt Sandusky is seen as the good guy. And the district attorney clearly needed to protect the police and needed some sort of face-saving maneuver for what was obviously a horrendous uh, violation of numerous civil rights, including uh, freedom of speech, prior restraint of free speech, uh, freedom of the press, uh, freedom of association, since I had a ticket in my own name to be there. And against every fiber of my being, I ended up taking the deal, uh, mainly because I live in California and coming back for a trial uh, under these political circumstances where, as I said, I could face nine years in prison And having no faith at all in the system, uh, I decided to take that deal, uh, which I I still to this day regret, although it was probably the right decision from a lifestyle standpoint, especially with a wife and small kid and a wife who's trying to get pregnant. So there were a lot of different factors that uh, were involved in that. Uh, But to me, the bottom line, John, which I'm sure got lost in all of that to almost anybody, is that Matt Sandusky's behavior towards me is 1,000% consistent with that of a guy who is obviously lying and 1,000% inconsistent with a guy who is a real uh, child sex abuse victim who would have had no fear of me just sitting there in my seat if he was telling the truth. But he knows he's lying. He knows that I have his number. And that's why he feared me so much that he had me arrested uh, at that event. Yeah. Did, did you, uh, did you plan on if they would have let you sit there asking him questions or did, he probably didn't even have a question and answer session, but what, what was, what was your, what was your objective, I guess? Well, I didn't know what, what was going to happen. I wanted, I wanted to be there just in case there was an opportunity. That's how deeply I have cared about this case that I was willing to spend all that money and time just for that potential opportunity. I'm a big believer, John, in pressure. Uh, I don't know if you're even aware of this, but you know I, I'm a small but significant part of the reason why O.J. Simpson is currently in prison. And it was because I continued to put pressure on him whenever he did public events trying to sign autographs. Uh, that, that directly led to what happened in Las Vegas, and he got ended up getting arrested and, and put in prison, really, for a situation that, <laughs> frankly, from a moral standpoint, I'm not sure he really did all that much wrong, certainly not in comparison to having slaughtered two people that he got away with. Uh, but in a very similar situation, uh, my my goal was to to put Matt Sandusky on at least a little bit of pressure and see what happened. Uh, it's obvious that he cracked under pressure, but unfortunately, because the the organizers there were clueless and the police there were clueless and the DA there was clueless, 
uh, he had a lot of support in being able to get away with his meltdown under pressure. Yeah, it uh, it's, uh, certainly brought a lot of attention to the event. Um, I know your your name was in a lot of a lot of news articles, and a lot of a lot of news sources got it completely wrong, saying stuff like you didn't have a ticket and you you crashed the the speaking engagement. But uh, that, of course, was not the case. You were ticketed, and and you were, and he knew you were. He knew you were coming, and that's probably why he uh, he he picked you out and had you kicked out. But let's let's well, move on. It's typical. It's typical of the reporting on the entire case, John. I mean, the media sees every story related to the Penn State Sandusky quote unquote scandal through the prism of what they think to be true, and then therefore they interpret everything. Uh, through that prism, but that prism is is completely wrong, and that's why they interpret everything wrong, and they have a, a narrative that they need to protect, and their bias is more extreme than than, I, than on any other story I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, it's 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 really it's really frightening to uh, to see the bias and just the lack the lack of even wanting to look for the truth to wanting to look for the truth in in documents that are that are there right to read and you know an idiot could could read them so that kind of moves me to my to my next point here in may so this happened in april at the matt sandusky event we were just talking about a month later in may uh penn state sandusky paterno back in the news where there was a leak through uh through penn live which ironically enough i think was the uh the news source that that leaked the that got the original grand jury leaked to leak the Sandusky uh, grand jury report, and in this circumstance, this was in early May. Um, there was one sentence taken out of a lawsuit between Penn State and their insurer. Penn State was trying to get their insurer to pay uh, the uh, settlement claims from the victims, totaling almost hundred million dollars. And the one the one line that turned into a headline was something to the effect of, in 1976, a child allegedly reported to PSU's head coach, Joe Paterno, that they were sexually assaulted by Sandusky. Just just that one line, and that set off a, a media firestorm. That was, that was might have been a Friday night or something, and, and by Saturday, things had gone absolutely mad. Um, so I, what, one thing I wanted to ask you about, John, if you could just put kind of in perspective at, at this first case, this first, uh, first little uh, leak here, what what was it all about between Penn State or not lawsuit? This court, I guess, arbitration about between Penn State and their insurance company. Well, John, in short, there has never, in my to my knowledge, ever been more headlines based upon a nothing story, more smoke with less fire than in this particular situation. Uh, here you had a judge almost as an aside in a case that had to deal with whether or not Penn State was going to be reimbursed by its insurance company for the almost $100 million in settlement payments that they had paid for the supposed victims of Jerry Sandusky, saying, oh, by the way, you know, back in 1976, one of the accusers say, said that they told Joe Paterno. That was it. And as you said, all hell broke loose uh, because somehow a judge said it. That made it automatically true, even though we knew at that point nothing literally nothing about the allegation. Well, since that time, we've learned a little bit about the allegation and everything that we've learned is, is an obvious, it's an obvious lie. Uh, the story itself makes no sense. It makes no sense from the particulars as well as from a global perspective for a number of reasons, but let me just give you the, the highlights. The first is just the year itself, it makes no sense. Uh, so we're supposed to believe that in 1976, uh, Jerry Sandusky, who's basically still a nobody, he's not even defensive coordinator at Penn State yet. Uh, 
it, it molests a, a boy, or a boy, rapes him, I guess you'd call it. And Joe Paterno gets told by this boy, who, by the way, never tells anybody else for 40 years. He just tells Joe Paterno under highly dubious uh, circumstances. And not only does Joe Paterno do nothing, tells the kid supposedly to go pound sand. I got a football game to win uh, effectively. But then he promotes Sandusky to to, uh, not only doesn't fire him, promotes Sandusky. And even more amazingly, in 1977, he allows Sandusky to start the second mile charity for at-risk kids while Paterno offers to be an honorary board member for that charity. Now, that's just laughable. I mean, it's just completely insane. It's not possible. And But to me, even if you want to live in this Alice in Wonderland world that the media wants to create and where rationality no longer has any power, you know who doesn't believe the story? 1976 accuser's own lawyer, Michael Bonney. Now, I, I don't have an explanation for this, John, but it's a fact that I've put out the article numerous times and and, and it's clear cut. There's been no, no retraction, no explanation for it. But Michael Bonney, back before we knew he was the 1976 accuser's attorney, said in May that he does not believe the 1970s accusations against Joe Paterno and said that he did not believe that there was any evidence to support 1970s allegations against Joe Paterno. And he said it, by the way, well, indicating he has no love for Paterno and he doesn't want to defend the guy, but, you know, he just doesn't believe that there's any evidence that he was culpable. (laughs) This is the attorney for the 1976 guy. We didn't know that when he made that statement. And my guess is, John... He didn't know when he made that Mm -hmm. statement that he would be revealed as the attorney because when that statement was made, the media had not yet uh, asked for and then gotten permission for the parts of these records to be made public. So when your own attorney is saying that the 70s allegations don't have credibility, I think that's pretty damning. But the news media has ignored that because they, you know, to them, this whole story is Santa Claus. They are nine-year-olds who were starting to question whether Santa Claus actually exists. And these Sullivan stories are basically like half-eaten cookies that they found on Christmas morning. And they go, aha, there's no possible other explanation for these half-eaten cookies than for there to actually be a Santa Claus. That in their mind, that's the only way that there could be half-eaten cookies on Christmas morning. Well, there's another explanation. And the explanation is that these stories are all fairy tales. And that the reason why there is an allegation in 1976 is that the Second Mile Charity had not yet started. And because if your allegation, if your age indicates that you, when you come forward after Joe Paterno was fired in 2011, you come forward and you're trying to make a claim against Penn State, and, and your age dictates that the latest that you can make an allegation is 1976, you've got a major problem, John, because here's how the settlements went down. If you were under the age of 30, which is the statute of limitations in Pennsylvania, and you were a member of the Second Mile Charity, then you got a settlement. You got a big settlement if you were a trial accuser. You got a big settlement if you were also able to connect your story to Penn State in any way. But in 1976... That you're way, way beyond the statute of limitations, and the second mile charity hasn't started, so you're not part of the second mile. Now you've got two strikes against you. 
And when you got two strikes against you, you better come up big on the third. And there's no better way to come up big than to implicate not just Penn State, but Joe Paterno. And that's how that story got created. And I'm not just talking out of my ass here. I know this because there's a fake accuser who has been in the system, who has gone to one of the most prominent attorneys in this entire case. I have audio recordings, hours and hours of audio recordings between this purposely fake accuser and this attorney. And this is exactly how these settlements work. I have audio proving this. Uh, and the, the lawyer in this particular situation has no qualms with manipulating a story in order to conform it to what Penn State wanted for there to be a settlement. So this is an obvious. Is, is there any of those audio recordings will, will get released anytime soon? You know, I don't know. That's a good question. There's a lot of reasons why I have not done that as of yet. Part of them, part of the concern is the legality issue. And, you know, John, I'll be very honest. Uh, I no longer think this story is worth me being uh, or anybody potentially being put at risk uh, for, for legal prosecution. At one point, I did think it was. But, you know, to me, um, Penn State has proven that this story is over uh, from a win-loss situation. Uh, the good guys lost. The bad guys won. And, you know, I'm smart enough to know when it's over. So even though in a rational world, I have enough on the computer through which I'm speaking to you right now to blow this that I have not yet released to completely blow this story wide open. I have no faith that it actually would because this case is totally different than any other case. And you know what? Frankly, I don't give a shit. <laughs> I, I'm no, I no longer I, I no longer give a shit. I mean, uh, you know what? Uh, maybe Penn State got what it deserved just for different reasons uh, than uh, than what the media thought were the reasons it got what it deserved. Yeah, well, it's it's definitely it's it's understandable coming from coming from your your perspective with what you've been through the the Matt Sandusky stuff and and, and more than that. The Matt Sandusky thing was uh, one of the final straws that broke the camel's back, but there's been others. Uh, the unanimous approval of Ira Lupert, who is critical to these settlements as the uh, chairman of the board of the board of trustees. You know, there have been other things. I, I feel like I've been betrayed uh, personally by a lot of people who are theoretically on my side in the story. And so, you know, as I look around, I'm like, I don't really know who I'm fighting for. I mean, I know what the truth of this story is. I mean, I, my whole thing here, John, is I've been fighting for the truth. Uh, I know what the truth is. I, I have proven beyond any shadow of a doubt. I I am 1,000% sure that Jerry Zendusky, Joe Paterno, and Penn State are completely innocent in this whole deal. I don't even have a question about it anymore. Zero. And, you know, people who, who uh, are interested enough in the truth, I think, also already know that. So if you're not interested enough yet... Go fuck yourself. I mean, I, I, you know, it, it, you know, it's not nothing I can do about it. I'm not going to put myself or anybody else in legal jeopardy. But that's not to say, you know, if things were to change, I'm still open to to releasing that audio because uh, I mean, it really does. In a in a rational world, John, it would be it would be huge. Uh, it would be you know, uh, network TV networks would be uh, you know battling with each other to have me and the fake accuser on to discuss this situation, but this is not a normal case. Yeah. Maybe if you released it around the same time frame that they leaked the grand jury report when nothing was going on in the sports world or anywhere, and it could, it could just dominate the Alas, they, they would have to look at it for what it is, which they probably wouldn't. 
Um, I, I do want to talk a little bit more about some of the other stories that were in the uh, that were in the, uh, what the, the what the media asked for to be to be released, and they were re- the, the judge uh, did release. They did redact victims' names. I do want to talk about that first. I do want to talk about a uh, CNN claim. A nineteen one victim went to uh, to CNN, and I guess CNN held on to this claim for the past year. This is a victim from nineteen seventy one. Um, can you talk a little bit about this claim? I know that your uh, the notorious Sarah Ganim was involved in this. You know, John, the 1971 claim sounds as if I made it up uh, in order to try to prove my view of the case. And I'm not exaggerating that uh, because here's why. Uh, here's what we have. We've got a claim that on its face is ridiculous. The claim in 1971, again, Jerry is a nobody at this time is that Jerry Sandusky picks up a kid hitchhiking and gives him marijuana and alcohol. Okay, now, you can believe whatever you want to believe about Jerry Sandusky, but nobody, not one accuser, nobody has ever indicated that he would even know where to get marijuana or alcohol, nevertheless ever use marijuana or alcohol, nevertheless have them in his car to pick up a hitchhiker. I mean, it's completely absurd. And then he comes, he brings the kid back, rapes him on Penn State's campus, and apparently only tells one guy. The guy that he tells, other than Joe Paterno, which I'll get to momentarily, he tells Bernie McHugh. Now, Bernie McHugh is a complete nut job who happens to be in the documentary film Happy Valley and is exposed, although not intentionally, because they're trying to be sympathetic to him, as a total nut job. If you've seen the film, he's the guy at the statue yelling at people. Now, Bernard McHugh is not just insane and an obvious uh, paterno critic, to say the least, but he's got a major credibility issue. And that is that he has written and tweeted numerous times that he actually liked Joe Paterno up until 2011 when the story broke. Well, how in the world is that consistent with you being told in 1971 by a, quote, friend of yours, by the way, a friend that you were like, I, I think, like 18 years older than uh, you're, you're 18 years or something in that vicinity older than this kid who gets raped by Jerry Zanusky in 1971. The kid tells you about this and tells you that he told Joe Paterno and apparently the athletic director at the time on a conference call set up by his stepdad, even though I doubt very seriously that there were conference call capabilities in the Penn State football office in 1971. But so how does Bernard McHugh think positively of Joe Paterno up until 2011 if he was really told about this story, this nonsensical story in 1971? That's just not possible. And then we have the two cherries on the top of the Sunday. One is that this guy has done an interview. Who did he do the interview with? As you've already referenced, Sarah Ganim, who is the person who is the patron saint of the media malpractice of this story, who won the Pulitzer Prize that ought to be revoked because everything revolves around her misreporting back in 2011 that started this whole case. As you already referenced, CNN, I am told, did a on-camera interview with this guy last year and did not release it. Now, if you know anything about the news media, that's an immediate huge red flag. That means they they had grave reservations about the story. 
And by the way, they didn't release the video even when they went with the story. The only reason why they went with the story was because the 1976 story was making headlines and they felt like they now had cover. That's all they wanted. They wanted cover so that they couldn't get in trouble in case it turned out the 71 story was bullcrap, which it obviously is. So when the 76 story comes out, they come out with a with not even the interview, just to basically cherry pick quotes from this Sarah Ganim interview. By the way, she got the guy's age wrong by two years. Apparently she got it wrong. Who knows? I don't know how old the guy really is, but they had to change it in the article. There were other problems with the accuracy of the article. And then we find out most recently that not only is Sarah Ganim directly involved, which makes it untrustworthy, and obviously with a clear agenda, because she's got to save her career. I mean, her career is totally invested in this narrative, so she'll do anything to, to facilitate it. But his attorney is Andrew Shubin. And Andrew Shubin is a guy who has represented at least nine of the accusers in this case, including Matt Sandusky, including Alan Myers, who was the McQuarrie uh, kid who never testified at trial because he said numerous times he was never molested, but only became an accuser officially after the trial, so he never had to testify against his good friend Jerry, who he supported in numerous ways to extraordinary degrees in a way completely inconsistent with ever being a victim. So you've got Bernard McHugh, Sarah Ganim, Andrew Shubin, and a story that makes absolutely no sense to the nth degree and for which there's an interview that CNN has not aired. I'm sorry, John, not to me. That story, the 71 story, takes the cake it's the most obvious fabrication in the whole story, the whole entire quote-unquote scandal. And what should have immediately, in a rational world, opened the eyes of the news media to go, holy shit, this is all bullshit. Instead, they all dutifully go, wow, oh my gosh, Joe Paterno knew this all the way back in 1971. Again, the reason why the 71 guy has to make up a story involving Joe Paterno is... He's outside the statute of limitations, and the second mile charity doesn't exist yet. The only way he gets money is by implicating Penn State and Joe Paterno, which is what he did. By the way, this is not public knowledge, but I am told very credibly that both 76 and 71 got by far the smallest dollar amounts in their settlements. So Penn State didn't even believe them. They just decided to pay them off, thinking that it would go away. And obviously, that didn't work out very well. Yeah, Penn State Time obviously didn't think any of this would be public knowledge. They thought they could just sweep it under the rug. These, you know, these rabble rousers who, obviously, it seems to me that they're just trying to get paid. But, you know, the media would never come out and say that. One thing I do want to talk about. It's, it's By the way, John, that's obvious. And by, and, and by the way, this is an important point because you know, oftentimes I, I never get a chance to make this. To me, it's so obvious, but maybe it's not to people. You could only have an injustice of this magnitude in a story where you're not even allowed to contemplate the other side. You know, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? That in other words, it is the it is because in the news media you're literally not allowed to question the accusers. That's the only way they could get away with this because they had universal protection. And I mean, this is the only big story of its kind that I'm aware of where you're not even allowed to discuss there being another side. You can claim that JFK was killed by Martians. I mean, you can claim 
Martin Sheen's coming out with a documentary next year that O.J. Simpson was innocent because his son did the murders, and he'll be taken somewhat seriously. But you can't, you cannot, in in the, in the mainstream media, you cannot say, you know what? Maybe it's possible that all these guys just decided to lie for millions of dollars, as if that would never happen before. Otherwise, you're considered an insane person. Well, it is that protection that allowed them to get it away. It really is unbelievable. Um, I do want to shift and talk about our talk about Mike McQuarrie. For those who haven't listened to uh, John's past two appearances on Felony Friday. I think it was in episode eight, we talked extensively about Mike McCreary. That, of course, was victim number two. That's the shower incident. That's what ties Penn State um, to Jerry Sandusky in this scandal, essentially. That that was the link, and that's how Penn State got tied, giving out these hundreds of millions of dollars. What happened, what was released recently in this, in this latest uh, dump that was unsealed, is some testimony, a, a deposition, excuse me, from 20 of McCreary, where he really said sort of... A, didn't say directly, but said that Tom Bradley, he implicated that Tom Bradley and Greg Schiano had some knowledge of Jerry Sandusky abusing boys. Obviously, uh, McCurry had opportunities to say this earlier. He didn't say anything about this uh, during, during the grand jury. There was no mention of that then. So my question is, John, at this time, why would Mike McCurry all of a sudden in 2015 during this deposition uh, bring this up? Well, Mike McQuarrie's entire life now is based upon his whistleblower lawsuit. He has no career. I mean, his football career is over. He'll never be hired to do anything in football. He's not a bright guy to begin with. So he, so his entire life is based upon getting as large a settlement or a judgment against Penn State in his whistleblower lawsuit. That means uh, a couple things. It means he has nothing to lose. His friendships are all gone. He used to be very close to Tom Bradley. They used to be roommates. Uh, but um, my understanding is that's no longer the case. My understanding is, by the way, that Tom Bradley believes that Jerry Sandusky is innocent. And he'll never have the guts to say that, much like Jay Paterno believes that Jerry Sandusky is innocent but doesn't have the guts to say it. Because Tom Bradley is currently employed at UCLA, and Jay Paterno still is living under the delusion that he can someday still coach or be a broadcaster or something like that. So... So they, they can't tell the truth about this, uh, which is unfortunate because there's so far too many cowards uh, on the supposed good side of this story. But I digress. Uh, so basically, McQuarrie has nothing to lose. Now, my guess is, here's what I think happened. And this is, this is consistent with all of McQuarrie's testimonies. My guess is it's not a complete fabrication. My guess is, because this had been rumored a long time ago, and, and in fact, even before the scandal broke, there was some indication online that Bradley may have been told about the shower episode. Uh, now, your roommates, I mean, I, I can certainly see where if Jerry Sandusky's name came up at some point, McQuarrie may have said, yeah, I, I, I saw Jerry in a shower with a boy. It was weird. I told Joe. Uh, and that's what I think probably happened. And now, now that we all presume that we know Jerry Sandusky was a monster pedophile, that takes on a completely different context than it did when McQuarrie would have told him that, which would have probably been 2004, 2005, somewhere in that range. So now all of a sudden, a slight exaggeration takes on a far more nefarious context. And he did the same thing with uh, Greg Schiano, who's now at Ohio State, although that comes through Tom Bradley. 
So I didn't take that one quite as seriously. But basically, McQuarrie is throwing everything up against the wall with nothing to lose because he needs there to be this belief that Penn State knew what was going on and that Mike McQuarrie was the guy who blew the whistle. And by the way, I'm amazed but from both perspectives, both the pro-paterno and the anti-paterno standpoints, that more was not made of what McQuarrie said about Joe Paterno in that testimony because he really throws Joe Paterno under the bus far worse than he has ever done before in what he claims to have told Paterno in no uncertain terms that this was an extremely sexual event. That completely contradicts what he has said numerous times previously. Uh, and it's because he has nothing else to lose. Joe Paterno is dead. Uh, and, you know, Scott, one of the many, 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 many mistakes that Scott Paterno made in all this, and Scott Paterno, Joe's son and lawyer and PR advisor during all this fiasco, told me, and I have a record of this, uh, that he would never, this was several years ago, he would never allow anything to come out uh, related or connected to the family that criticized Mike McQuarrie, which is one of the reasons why Scott Paterno was not supporting my work and, and was very critical of me when I went on the Today Show with Matt Lauer the first time. It was because they wanted to support Mike McQuarrie. Well, that was a catastrophic mistake because McQuarrie, whatever loyalty Scott Paterno thought he would get out of Mike McQuarrie is long gone. And Mike McQuarrie has, in my view, now forever uh, put Joe Paterno's uh, casket uh, or his legacy in a casket from which there is no realistic escape unless Jerry Sandusky is vindicated and exonerated. That's the only path to Joe Paterno's legacy ever being rightfully restored. But unfortunately, because Scott Paterno is fully invested in Jerry Sandusky's guilt, because that's the premise on which he based all of his advice back when the story broke or even before it broke, because Scott was duped into believing this was all real when it wasn't. And I can fully explain and prove all that, uh, but it takes too much time to do so. I've done videos on this, but there's the, 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 the a very good explanation for how and why Scott got duped. And because he's invested in Jerry's guilt, there's no path for Joe to be absolved. And Mike McCreary is a big Hey, he certainly is. Um, I want to shift gears, shift back uh, to talk about another claim that was unsealed in 19. It was dates back to 1988. And the claim says that a man identified John Doe as John Doe 101 um, was in the, uh, I guess, locker room uh, facility area with Sandusky. And Kevin O'Day, a coach, a Penn State coach at the time, alleged by this uh, this claim, walked in saw what was happening, Sandusky touched him inappropriately, shut the door, and and, and walked out. Uh, the only problem with that is they're saying this happened in 1988. Kevin O'Day did not come to Penn State until 1991. So what's what's the deal with that, John? How does Penn State let that fly? How, how, do, they give, how do they award a claim when they can just do a simple Google search? Well, you know, you're being a real stickler there. For details, John. I mean, just because he wasn't at Penn State yet doesn't mean he couldn't have witnessed this. I, I'm obviously being sarcastic. By the way, the other person that supposedly witnessed this person's abuse is dead. So you use a dead guy and a guy who wasn't even at Penn State when you make the claim. I don't know if you're aware of this, uh, but I, I, I think I'm the only person who has reported this. So you know, it's, it would be easy, I guess, to miss. But that the, that person making that claim was Matt Sandusky. That's Matt Sandusky, which is really interesting because 
not only does he get it wrong that O'Day wasn't even there, but there's no mention of those witnesses in his book. Now, if you're writing a book about this, how do you not mention that two Penn State football coaches witnessed your abuse? That's just not possible. However, if you're making the story up and you are under the belief that it will never become public, or at the very least, your name will never become public associated with it, you let it fly because Matt Sandusky had a problem. Matt Sandusky was outside the statute of limitations. And I am quite certain that Matt Sandusky, knowing him the way that I do, uh, through his lawyer, Andrew Shubin, was able to figure out that he needed a little extra juice to make sure that Penn State provided a settlement. And he picked a couple of names. He didn't do a very good job of vetting those names. I think he thought he was safe with one that was dead. I don't know why he picked O'Day, although, you know, um, I know that we'll talk about it momentarily. Jerry Sandusky uh, has written a letter uh, referencing this particular allegation that I think is enlightening and consistent 100% with what I'm saying. Uh, the reality is that Matt uh, just lied and never thought that, and he was, you know, he's been very right all along, knowing that he'd be able to get away with anything because the media would let him get away with it. I mean, and, and frankly, part of that is the, the gutlessness on the members of the Board of Trustees. There are members of the Board of Trustees who know, because they have the information, that that accuser is Matt Sandusky. Uh, yet they're afraid to publicly say that. They'll tell me that, but they won't publicly say it. So therefore, it can't be reported because in the media's mind, I'm not credible. But it's clearly Matt Sandusky. If you read the heck, if you just read the testimony that was released, it's obviously Matt Sandusky. And the timing is very consistent with Matt Sandusky. Although one of the problems with the timing is, you know, Matt's original story is that victim number four, whose abuse started in 1998, was the victim from which Jerry transitioned away from abusing Matt to abusing victim number four. Well, <laughs> that's a problem from a from a timeline perspective because that's 10 years. <laughs> that's a hell of a long transition. Not to mention the fact that we already knew that uh, based upon when Matt said the abuse stopped, that there was at least four years in between the time when Matt says the abuse stopped and the time that Jerry ever met victim number four. The reality is that Matt saw victim number four in court and decided, Eureka, uh, this is the story I'm going to latch on to. It was all a lie, and this is further proof of it, but no one wants to look at it from that perspective, and everyone's too stupid and too gutless to tell the truth. Indeed, and, and you referenced this letter, John, this letter from Jerry Sandusky that you received. We're publishing that with this episode on the show notes page. You'll be able to find this letter at lionsofliberty.com slash ff31. So please check that out. And John, you received this letter. And uh, I think the part you want to focus on is, is actually towards the end of it, where he talks about, where Jerry Sandusky talks about Kevin O'Day bringing his kids, two young boys, to the Sandusky household uh, a few years ago, and Kevin O'Day telling telling the kids to jump on Jerry and, and wrestle with him. And then Jerry... Yeah, that. And then and after that, uh, in, and this is the, in a PS section of a letter that he sent to supporters, and I believe you're, you're publishing only a, only that small portion of it. Yes. If it's relevant to the news of the day. 
some of it, the rest of it's a bit more sensitive because, in, in my view, Jerry is being tortured in prison purposely by uh, the authorities there at at the prison where he is he is currently incarcerated uh, for reasons I'm not 100 percent sure of. But he has been going through a, a, a mental and physical hell, even worse than you might expect for an innocent guy being in a maximum security prison. But he not just talks about specifically Kevin O'Day, but then it generally discusses the the basically the evil nature of these settlements. And, you know, I realize most people automatically presume that Jerry must be a liar. I've spent years trying to find a situation where Jerry has lied desperately. I would have loved to have found a circumstance where Jerry lied to, to me or to anyone else that I'm aware of, because then I could get this case off my chest and get away from it because it's been horrendous for my life. I've yet to find one situation where Jerry Sandusky has ever lied about anything. And I think it's, you know, people can decide for themselves the credibility of it, but it certainly seems to me very consistent with, with I, what I believe to be the truth here as to how Jerry reacts to these most recent revelations with regard to the Penn State settlements. Yeah. And uh, John, I understand you also received uh, emails, emails between yourself and Ira Lubert, who was just he's now the the head of the uh, the board at Penn State, the board of trustees, and also emails between yourself and uh, Bruce Heim. Um, get, can you talk about the kind of the sequence of these emails? We're going to publish these on, on the site as well and kind of kind of walk through um, what occurred during these communications and what prompted them in the first place. Well, to me, these are very important emails. I've never released them. I figured the, the, my interview with you would be a good opportunity to do so. I've discussed this before, but you know, to me, this this is should be another example of I never discuss anything that I don't have proof of, uh, and these emails are the proof of this story that I have told on a couple of different occasions, and I think this is an important story. Here's the basic story. So Bruce Heim was the, uh, the founder and funder of the Second Mile Charity. He's a guy who was aware of the McQuarrie episode when it happened and was very confident that nothing had happened. He was a big supporter of Jerry, even through the grand jury investigation. Like many other people, once the crap hit the fan, he backed away. Uh, he was one of the few people with the knowledge and the resources to have potentially helped Jerry Sandusky's defense in a huge way. As a matter of fact, it's my understanding that he was the one who either hired or suggested the hiring of Joe Amendola, which was probably not a great idea, although I think Joe is a good guy. He was just completely overwhelmed by the circumstances. Anyway, long story short, Bruce and I had had several conversations, and at one point he indicated to me that he would be willing to reverse himself and believe that Jerry was in fact innocent, except for one thing, and that is that a member of the Penn State Board of Trustees, who I believe to be Paul Silvis because of his relationship with Bruce Heim, but I don't know this for a hundred percent fact, but I, I think I'm confident that it was Paul Silvis, that Paul Silvis had told him that Silvis had gone to Ira Lupert, who was in charge of the Penn State settlements, and, and basically said to Ira, look, are, we, are you sure we're not going too fast on this? Are you sure these settlements are real? Are you, are you sure that we shouldn't be maybe vetting these more or, or that maybe somehow this isn't all real? I, I'm par I don't know what the actual conversation is, but I'm paraphrasing what Bruce Heim told me. And according to what Silvis told Heim, uh, Ira Lupert told him, look, there is a tape of Jerry Sandusky abusing a boy, sexually abusing a boy. And Silvis told that to Heim, and Heim believed it because he trusted Silvis, and frankly, he trusts 
Looper. These are all people don't quite understand how rich and powerful people work. It's not like a conspiracy, but it is. They all feel like they're part of a club where, you know, they're not supposed to lie to each other. They all feel like they're better than everyone else because they have money. I know a lot of people like this. I've run in these circles and I can see where if Heim trusts Silvis and trusts Lupert and he gets told this as inside information that is ludicrous as it would seem to the outsider <laughs> that he might believe it. Well, when Bruce Heim told me this, I laughed at him. I'm sure Bruce is not used to being laughed at because people don't laugh at super rich people. Uh, and I told him that's ridiculous. There's no possible way there's a tape of Jerry Sandusky sexually abusing a boy. One, because I know he's innocent. Two, even if he was guilty, there's no way that could be hidden uh, through the int intensity of all of the scrutiny of this case. He said, well, go ahead and prove it to me and I'll change my mind. I said, well, how the hell am I going to do that? He says, well, get Ira Lupert to tell you there's no tape. So I call Ira Lupert, leave a message. I never got a response. But then I, th I think what happened is I got an email out of the blue from Ira Lupert. And it was very cryptic, very short responses, as you'll see in the email. And the bottom line is, after several attempts, I finally get him to acknowledge that there is no tape, to his knowledge, of Jerry Sandusky sexually molesting a boy. I leave it with him saying, look, this is my understanding of the story. If I'm wrong, let me know. I never receive another uh, email from him. And uh, there are three emails that I believe you're going to publish, or three email chains you're going to publish, and one of which is with Bruce Heim, uh, where uh, we then set up a phone conversation where at that time uh, Bruce indicates to me that he was satisfied that uh, there was no tape and that he could now believe uh, that Jerry Sandusky was innocent. Now, why is this important? It's one, it's an interesting story. Uh, two, I think it goes to the mindset of Ira Lupert because Ira Lupert is a key person in all these settlements. He is the key person. And it's consistent to me with... Uh, the following scenario. I think Lupert knew. I think he knew that most, if not all, of these settlements stunk to high heaven. And that when he, when he started to get a little bit of blowback from a member of the Board of Trustees, he, he was basically being bothered by a fly and he killed the fly with a nuclear weapon, uh, making sure that there would be no more uh, blowback, there would be that any kind of resistance would would not receive any traction at all so that he wouldn't have to worry about this. And, and that's just a theory on my end, but and you can decide for yourself when you read the emails and, and you, if you listen to my story, what, how you interpret it. But to me, somebody's got to be lying there. And I don't believe Bruce is lying. Now, I do believe there could be a whisper down the lane phenomenon between Lupert and Silvis and Heim, but this is a fairly simple story. I mean, there is either a tape or there's not a tape. And if you wanted to kill any kind of criticism, any kind of, uh, of resistance, that would be the way you would do it. You would make up a story. Hey, look, there's a tape. Uh, we know this is all, you know, back off. And do you think, do you think there are still ahead. people on the board that think there is a tape? That's a good question. You know, I don't know that, you know, that's quite possible. I, I will say that, uh, John, that that one of the many, many things, I've never really talked about this as much as I should have in all the dozens and dozens of interviews that I've done, but there's been no question that what I refer to as the side of the good in this story, you know, the pro-paterno side, the truth side of this story, 
There's been no question that since day one, back in November of 2011, that our side has been greatly hampered by continual fear that there's something else out there. Don't rush to defend because there's something else. There's no evidence right now, but there's gonna be. There's gonna, uh, you know. And then that's when in a small town like State College, rumors, you know, run rampant. And so I know so many people who would have been far more likely to defend certainly Joe and maybe even Jerry if there hadn't been this fear of, uh-oh, there's got to be something else. There's got to be something else. I don't want to run into a, a buzzsaw here. And I think this tape story is emblematic of that. Yeah, it's a, that's what sort of allowed this whole thing to fester is people – People are really afraid to stand up, and there's have been so few that have that have even challenged, even partially challenged some of these things. So I mean that's I mean that's why it's great that uh, you know that's why I keep having you back on, John, because really there's no one else to turn to. There's no one else with the balls to really challenge this out there. One thing I did want to ask you, and I do want to recommend that any of my listeners who haven't listened to episode eight and fourteen do that. But also on top of that, if you're really interested in getting an opinion from someone totally outside Penn State, John Ziegler did an interview with Jay Moore, the actor, comedian, on his podcast, More Stories. And I'll link to that in the show notes. And I think it's a really great interview because it comes from Eye's perspective, who, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, John, but I think he was very critical of Joe Paterno, really thought Paterno had something to do with this at the start. And then through reading your work and looking at your interviews and all your research, changed his mind. So I wanted to ask you, but first of all, how, how did you uh, land that interview with, with Jay Moore? Well, I believe it occurred because the guy who runs Jay Moore's fan website is a fan of my old radio show here in Los Angeles. And he posted a um, the YouTube version of my Framing of Joe Paterno documentary. And then that facilitated uh, Jay Moore and I having a conversation on Twitter which then facilitated a phone conversation. And I live just outside of Los Angeles where Jay lives. So I went to Jay's house and we did almost a three hour podcast. And, you know, I don't want to speak for Jay, but you know, Jay is a celebrity. So he's not going to publicly take the politically incorrect stance here. But I can assure you that behind the scenes, Jay is very supportive of what I'm doing and is uh, and, and appears to be 100 percent convinced that I am right. Uh, he'll never say that publicly, but unfortunately, that's very, very common in this case. But, you know, I, I for a guy in Jay's position, I have to respect uh, sim- similar to, you know, Franco Harris being an NFL Hall of Famer and Jay Moore being a you know Hollywood celebrity. I'm much more realistic about what people like that can do. I, I don't expect that, you know, I don't expect them to cr- commit career suicide because they actually have something to lose. Uh, the people that I'm I'm more upset with are the, the supposed pro-paterno members of the Penn State Board of Trustees who got elected supposedly to fight this battle, many of whom know not only that Joe Paterno is, is innocent, but that Jerry Sandusky is innocent. Uh, you know, Bob Caprato and I have been very close we played golf together at Oakmont, which is his golf course. We've had hours and hours of conversation. We've met numerous times. Bob knows Jerry's innocent. Uh, Anthony Lebrano knows that Jerry Sandusky is innocent. Rob Tribeck knows 
that Jerry Sandusky is innocent. In fact, Rob, I think, knew before I did. Uh, and, and he's a lawyer. Um, Ryan McCombie probably knew before anybody that Jerry Sandusky is innocent. Ryan McCombie played golf with Jerry Sandusky and Alan Myers, the, the kid in the shower in the McQuarrie episode, just before Jerry's arrest. Uh, and, and Jerry had introduced him to McCombie because McCombie is a military guy and Alan Myers at the time uh, was, was a, a sergeant in the Marine Corps. And, and so, so I'm sure McCombie has to know uh, that, that Jerry is innocent and this whole thing is bullcrap. There are probably other members of the board of trustees that know, but no one has the guts to say it. And what really bugs me is that they maybe they don't even understand it, but they have a huge incentive to say it now because the only way to save Joe Paterno at this point is to exonerate Jerry Sandusky. I've been saying that for years, and and I could understand when I started to say it why people might go, well, no, no, that's not true, John. All we got to do is is disprove McQuarrie and and you know have the administrators be exonerated and we'll be okay. I didn't necessarily agree with that, but at least that made some sense. Now that's gone. Because even when the administrators are completely exonerated, it'll be perceived as a technicality. McQuarrie has intensified his testimony, so uh, you know, eliminating that is never going to happen. And now we've got 71 and 76 and 88 and all these others that have been widely reported with no real blowback. So unless and until Jerry Sandusky is exonerated, Joe Paterno's legacy is in a casket. And unfortunately, the people who have said that their goal is to to salvage Joe Paterno's legacy and the truth of this case have not had the guts to do it. And that has been incredibly depressing to me and really is great. Maybe one of the greatest tragedies in this entire case, because Joe Paterno said he wanted the truth. He didn't say he wanted a truth that, you know, the media might buy and allow his statue to be returned, even though at the time he died, he didn't even know his statue was going to be removed. He said he wanted the truth. And by the way, I think he said he wanted the truth because I don't think he really believed the story that was being told at the time of his death. Because even though he didn't like Jerry Sandusky, I, I think he was smart enough to understand that, wait a minute, this didn't make any sense. And Jay Paterno, I know, knew it didn't make any sense. Um, but this whole thing was several perfect storms that all came together at the same time. And now, unfortunately, there's no way to rectify it unless a miracle happens for Jerry Sandusky in court. He's going to be probably testifying uh, in August uh, in his post-conviction relief uh, hearing. That'll be interesting if that happens, but uh, the way he's being treated in prison, I, I don't know if he's going to be physically capable or certainly not be completely with it. I, I, I can't imagine I would be completely with it, and I'm not 72 years old uh, based upon what he's enduring in prison. But there's no way that the, the same judge who's overseeing the post-conviction relief uh, hearing, who also oversaw the original trial, is going to make that trial the biggest of his life null and void against 100 percent of the media and a massive portion of the population of Pennsylvania. This thing has to get to federal court. And I don't think Jerry Sandusky is going to live long enough. I'm, I'm not a doctor. I'm just thinking just basic logic. He's 72. The last five years have been hell. He's being tortured in prison now. Uh, I just can't believe he's going to live the three or four years that it would take 
for this thing to get into a court that could theoretically go, wait a minute, what the fuck is this? This is bullshit. And a federal court's the only court that could theoretically do that. And, you know, there's just never, you know, without a new trial, uh, the truth of this case will be forever lost, except for people who know about framing Paterno. Yeah, I, I will challenge anyone listening who's listened to John Ziegler talk during this interview, listen to me talk, questioning everything about this case, who still thinks who, th- who thinks that we're crazy, that we're crazy for thinking that uh, Jerry Sandusky is innocent. Go to framingpaterno.com. And do the research yourself and then come back and talk to me. Send me an email after you do that. Don't spout off and, and call me a crazy person until you do the research yourself. Listen to that Jay Moore interview. John, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Can you leave uh, your, your social media contacts, your Twitter contact, or where people can get a hold of you? Yeah, sure. But re- re- let me give you the real, very short version for those people that you just referred to as to why I know Jerry is innocent. I mean, I could talk for hours about it, but here's the shortest version. This whole case was based on two pillars, Mike McQueary and Aaron Fisher, victim number one. We were told in November of 2011 when the story broke that these were pillars of steel. Sarah Gannon told us that, that McQueary had seen a rape and that Aaron Fisher was clearly and obviously abused for years because he was the only accuser for the first two years of this grand jury investigation. Even I believed that Fisher must be credible for the first year and a half or two years of my investigation into this. Well, we've talked a lot about McQuarrie. With regard to Fisher, John, I have a dozen people at least on the record. I haven't released all of them yet. About three or four of them I have not released uh, for a number of reasons. But I have at least a dozen people on the record in their names recorded who are very close to Aaron Fisher. I'm talking about best friends during the alleged time of the abuse. I'm talking about parents of the best friends who had numerous sleepovers with Aaron Fisher during this basic time period. I'm talking about girlfriends. I'm talking about aunts of Aaron Fisher's own family, close aunts, uh, who uh, all not just question whether or not he's telling the truth. They are positive he's lying. Positive. All of them. Friends, girlfriends, relatives, parents of, of friends, a neighbor, the, the ne- direct next door neighbor when this actually allegedly occurred. And this is a guy who's rich and protected by the news media. And these are people who are bombarded with, still to this day, negative Jerry Sandusky propaganda. And yet, despite all that, they're positive he's lying. Well, when the two pillars of McQuarrie and Fisher disintegrate in sand, which they have, in the real world, then the rest of the case can't possibly be true because those were the two pillars that were used to get everybody else on board. And then once Paterno gets fired, the $100 million did the rest. So that's why we know that Jerry Sandusky is innocent, not to mention you know, the story doesn't make any damn sense. As far as where to get in touch with me, uh, there's obviously you can email me through framingpaterno.com. Uh, my uh, radio website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. And my Twitter handle is Zygmunt Freud. And John, I appreciate uh, your willingness to talk about the truth of this case. Well, thank you for coming on the show again, John. Woo-wee, what a show. Uh, this show ran a, a little bit longer than normal. I normally try to keep these episodes to a half hour, maybe 45 minutes. But it seems like every time I uh, 
have John Ziegler on the podcast. We end up talking for for at least an hour, but but it's good, and this is stuff that needs to be talked about, and I think especially uh, needs to be talked about from the angle that John Ziegler is coming at it from, which is to tear down this media narrative, which really has not been criticized at all by the mainstream media or any any sort of journalist or any sort of investigative journalist. You, you know, I, I do want to emphasize, it's, it's easy for people to listen to a podcast like this or even just see, see the headline and uh, see the headline that someone is questioning the, the Jerry Sandusky scandal, somebody is questioning the victims, and automatically assume that we're some kind of lunatics that are in favor of, of child abuse, child sexual abuse, which is ridiculous. That is, that is just insane. And if you honestly think that John Ziegler or myself or anyone else that is questioning the narrative of this case favors child abuse, then I honestly don't know what to tell you. If if you can uh, listen to these podcasts and look at all the evidence on freemianpaterno.com and honestly not think that at a minimum this case needs to needs to go to trial again, then I honestly do not know what to tell you. Please do yourself the favor, and if you're going to criticize at least get all the facts. At least do the research. At least visit framingpaterno.com, John Ziegler's website. The framing Paterno was not literal. John Ziegler does not think that Joe Paterno was framed. He said that on uh, on past episodes. I don't think he said that actually today, but but I know that to be true. So do the research and check it out. Listen to the podcast uh, that John went on with Jay Moore. Listen to it from the perspective of somebody Looking at this, that's been uh, removed from it. Jay Moore just sort of, you know, as John said, it was he was brought to his attention this work, and he looked into it himself, and he wanted to discuss it with John Ziegler. And Jay Moore does a fantastic job of taking John Ziegler through chronologically. It it really is just a just a great interview, and uh, you know, I really recommend that you check it out. And obviously, I, I would love if you also check out my previous interviews with John Ziegler. Episode 8 and episode 14. I will link to those in the show notes for you to check those out. But uh, that says something. You know, I'd actually rather you listen to the Jay Moore podcast first before listening to mine, just to get that perspective. Jay's a great interviewer, and and I do have a lot of respect for his work. Um, I don't want to take a lot more of your time, guys. Just want to finish finish up here and remind you, please to uh, subscribe to the podcast. If you do enjoy what we're doing here, please help us out. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And uh, please, you can also help us out. If you haven't liked our Facebook page or followed us on Twitter, please do that. You can find links to all of that on the show notes page as well. Or, you know, you're smart people. You can find that on Facebook and Twitter too by, by searching around for Lions of Liberty. And if you have not joined our private Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum, I'm not sure what you're waiting for. It's growing like crazy right now. There is awesome conversations going on every single day. A uh, lot of great discussion, some arguments, just just great, uh, great stuff, good stuff. And, and uh, we would love to have you there. So please, you can join that by going to Facebook and typing Lions of Liberty in the search bar or typing Lions of Liberty Forum in the search bar. It'll pop up and... Uh, we will get you approved as long as you don't look like some sort of crazy person lunatic or maybe someone selling something from, uh, I don't know, Zimbabwe or something like that. We'll let you in if not. So other than that, that's all I have. I really want to thank you so much for listening. I know it's been a long episode. Thank you so much for bearing with me. I really do appreciate it. And I, I really do appreciate you guys as listeners. So with that being said, as always, guys, this is John Odermatt signing off. Please remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.